alien readers and alien listeners, I am Derek Monette, Deputy Editor-in-Chief for Academic Life, and I'm joined today by two superstars from the Pediatric Emergency Care Applied Research Network. Doctors Nathan Cooperman and Nicole Glazer are here to help us take a deep dive into the background and implications of the recent groundbreaking publication on pediatric DKA in the New England Journal of Medicine. Both hail from UC Davis Health, where Dr. Cooperman is a professor of emergency medicine and pediatrics, and Dr. Glazer is also a professor of pediatrics with a focus on endocrinology. Titled Clinical Trial of Fluid Infusion Rates for Pediatric DKA, this project represents the first randomized controlled trial that investigates the relationship between IV fluids and brain injury in kids with DKA. Doctors Cooperman and Glazer, thanks so much for being with us today. Great to be here. Yeah, it's nice to be here. So tell us a little bit about evidence for the association and what's motivated you to study DKA in children for so many years. I think like a lot of interesting medical science, we were both inspired by interesting or difficult cases that we came across. In my case, when I was a pediatric resident, we had a really tragic case of a a two-year-old boy who died from DKA-related brain injury. And at the time, I went to look at the medical literature to try to understand better why this had happened, because it was sort of a shocking event, and really found that the information in the literature was kind of unsatisfying. It really didn't seem to explain very well why that had occurred. And then Nate had his own case that I'll let him tell you about. Yes. So my case was uh, a child who presented to the emergency department already with signs of DKA-related brain injury. And we're going to be using the term brain injury and cerebral edema a little bit differently than others have for reasons that we will get into. But this child presented with neurologic compromise, needing to be intubated and had a full-blown herniation syndrome before she had received any IV fluids whatsoever. So it made me think right away, wow, I was always taught that DKA-related cerebral edema was caused by IV fluids. And this child, certainly that was not the case. So I also reviewed the literature. And if you look at the literature before the work that Nicole and I have done, it's full of uncontrolled retrospective case series with some bold conclusions. And there had been no randomized controlled trials in children. And there was one particular letter to to the editor, which really struck us. It was written by a pediatric anesthesiologist intensivist named Elliot Crane, and it was in 1989, so nearly 30 years ago, and he wrote a letter to the editor in response to one of these uncontrolled case series, and he was saying that we really need more data on the pathophysiology of DKA-related cerebral injury or brain injury, and we need randomized controlled trials because the data do not argue for fluid-causing cerebral injury, but maybe there's some association. And that's really how we started on our 20-year path. And the last thing I'll say is it started with a survey in 1997 in which we surveyed pediatric chief residents, pediatric endocrinologists, pediatric intensivists, and emergency physicians about how they would treat a particular case scenario of a child with DKA and their fluid management. And as you can imagine, it was all over the place. And that's what sort of led us down this path to where we are today. I could add each step of the way, each subsequent study, the data just kept becoming more and more interesting. And 
pointing more and more away from fluids causing cerebral edema and cerebral injury, which led us to keep going and keep working on the topic. Before we go into the design and outcomes, just sort of in a, in a practical sense, why is this important to every ED provider? The protocols that every pediatric institution has around the management of DKA, it's really geared around the prevention of cerebral edema if that is possible. But the reason why we think this is so important to every provider who cares for children with DKA is that, first of all, these patients are ill. They're acidotic. They're dehydrated. So we want to make sure that we are treating them with state-of-the-art treatment. And based on our research of the last two decades, it really appears that these children have been underhydrated for decades. And that's based on these anecdotal and uncontrolled case series. And as we all know, for critically sick patients, adults or children, you need to perfuse the important organs like the brain and the kidneys, etc. And we feel that we've been not doing that well based on the literature to date in children with DKA. So tell us about the study design. Our study involved about 1,400 children with DKA, and we used what's called a factorial design where we had two different factors, the rate of fluid infusion and the sodium chloride content of the fluid. So we had two different rates of infusion. One was slower, which was more typical of the slow rehydration protocols that have been advocated, that is rehydration over 48 hours, assuming a fluid deficit of about 5%. And then we had two arms that were faster infusion of fluids, which was based on replacing half of the deficit over the first 12 hours and an assumed fluid deficit of 10%. And then um, within those slow and fast rates of infusion, half of the patients received uh, rehydration with half normal saline and the other half with normal saline. So we were able to compare not just the rates of rehydration, but also whether the sodium content of the rehydration fluids makes a difference in terms of the neurocognitive outcomes. And I just want to interject that all the children received their bolus with normal saline. What Nicole was talking about with the half normal versus normal, that was for the rehydration part of their hydration regimen. But everyone received normal saline bolus, but at uh, different rates, uh, as Nicole mentioned. And then within those four treatment arms, we looked at neurocognitive and neurological outcomes. So we looked at Glasgow Coma Scale scores while the children were being treated. We also looked at some tests of short-term memory during DKA treatment to get kind of more granular look at mental status rather than the more global or, or kind of gross look at mental status that you get from the GCS score. We also recorded any episodes of clinically apparent brain injury that happened during DKA. And then when the patients recovered, we had them come back between two and four months after the DKA episode to do neurocognitive testing. So at that time, we did tests of IQ and more in-depth tests of memory function. It's important for listeners to be aware when we talk about clinically apparent brain injury, we define that as one would for that full-blown sort of cerebral edema that we are all scared about. And that was defined by either intubation, receiving either mannitol or hypertonic saline, or death. So there was that was a secondary outcome measure, however, because we knew that that would be uncommon. The literature will state that between 05 to 0.9% of DKA episodes in children result in defined clinically important brain injury, although drops in GCS is much more frequent. Is GCS a reliable surrogate for cerebral edema? Is it 
validated in children? Yeah, very important question, Derek. So in fact, Nicole and I did a study that was published about a decade ago looking at this very question because in our 20-year quest, which we really didn't describe and we, we won't go into gory detail, but we have done some very sophisticated imaging of children with DKA using both MR spectroscopy as well as diffusion-weighted imaging, both in children as well as in a juvenile rat model of DKA. It's important because part of the goal, particularly the using the diffusion-weighted imaging, is to see where is fluid accumulating in the brain of children with DKA? Because if the presumed hypothesis that, that if you give too much fluid or drop the osmos too quickly, the astrocytes should swell. If you have a sort of a hypoperfusion, reperfusion injury, you get basogenic edema and fluid should accumulate outside the cell. So we've done these imaging studies you know, over the last decade or two. And in one of the studies, we looked at cerebral edema using MR, using techniques that have been done before. But our study, not only did we look at the frequency of cerebral edema, but we correlated it to mental status changes in children. And what we found is of those children who had ventricular narrowing, which is the marker of cerebral edema using standard MR techniques, those that had ventricular narrowing also had a more frequent decrease in their GCS scores. And really that formed the basis of that outcome measure for this particular study. I'll also add that we've looked quite a bit at what predicts that subclinical cerebral edema that Nate's talking about, that sort of mild brain swelling that occurs frequently in DKA. And the predictors of that in terms of lab variables, pH, glucose, and things like that are actually the same as what predict the clinically apparent cases that are rare of cerebral injury. So Although that's sort of indirect evidence, it does suggest that those things represent the same phenomenon on, on the spectrum, so that the GCS decline would be basically a milder version of what causes the severe clinically apparent brain injuries. You know, historically, people have thought that you give too much fluid or you lower the osmolality too quickly, you cause cerebral edema, which leads to a cerebral injury. But in our hypothesis, it's the opposite. That is, in the setting of hypoperfusion in a child with DKA, you have a hypoperfusion-related injury, and then secondarily, you get vasogenic edema. So we use those two terms, like others have, but in the inverse order. Jump right ahead to the conclusion. Is the concern about the association between rapid fluid resuscitation and cerebral edema in kids with DKA, is it a myth? Is it overblown? So let me I'll tell you, Nicole and I are looking at each other, and I'll take a crack at this one first. What I, what I will say is this, is that we've been doing studies on this topic for now since 1997, so literally two decades. And every time we look at factors that are associated with cerebral injury and edema, there are factors related to the severity of illness, acidosis, low PCO2, high BUN, so indicative of uh, dehydration. And in all of our multivariate analyses along the years, we have not been able to identify that fluid is a significant factor. So my response is, yes, I do think it's overblown. However, as always, I will exert a word of caution. Our findings are not a license to grossly overhydrate children. We think there you know, certainly could be risks there. There is basogenic edema that happens later. But it, what the, the results really argue for is that you should hydrate children appropriately based on 
their level of dehydration, and their clinical response to fluid, just like you would do any other child with dehydration. So yes, it is overblown. However, could a lot of fluids contribute? Yes, possibly, but we're not advocating for you know tremendous amounts of hydration. What we're advocating for is just treating children with DKA-related dehydration and acidosis as you would any other child with similar uh, metabolic parameters. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I, I think the what's been interesting to us over the years in studying this topic is that no matter what technique we use to look at it, findings always pointed to the same things, which were not what you would expect if fluids were the problem. That is, we in none of our studies did we find that there was a correlation between osmotic change and brain injury or cerebral edema or between rapid decrease in glucose or and the factors that you would expect. But instead, the factors that seem to predict injury were always things like hypocapnia and acidosis and dehydration, which over time and using the many different techniques really strongly points away from fluids as being the most important thing. And I'm, I'm going to add one other thing, and this is for the listeners out there who are very junior investigators, maybe even trainees, and it's just a word of caution as you read medical literature, because the old literature from 30 years ago, this is, in a nutshell, how those studies were conducted. The uh, investigators would accumulate a series of children from a variety of places with DKA-related cerebral edema and look at factors that were common to them. And those children did get more fluid than another randomly assembled group of children with DKA who didn't have cerebral edema. And it just so happens that those children received less fluids. So the conclusions of investigators was that, oh, well then fluids must be causing cerebral edema. And what is the problem here? Well, of course, the problem is who gets a lot of fluids? It's sick patients. It's dehydrated patients. And why didn't they conclude that it's those patients that are at risk for cerebral edema rather than patients who receive a lot of fluid. And that conclusion from three decades ago really put the brakes on investigation of this topic in the field because everyone got scared and everyone felt, wow, the investigators are telling us that if we give too much fluid, we're causing cerebral edema. But they easily could have concluded that sick patients get cerebral edema, but they didn't. We actually have a, a recent publication on the Alien blog that sort of tackles a similar myth, the concern that vasopressors may be associated with a higher risk of developing digital necrosis, mesenteric ischemia. It could just be that the patients requiring pressors were already hypoperfusing vital organs, and as a result, they were more prone to these outcomes. Tell us a little bit about your results, some of the finer details. So the main findings were, and let me just take a step back and say, although we studied both the fluid rate and the fluid composition, we were mostly interested in the fluid rate. And what we found is that in the fast arms, the frequency of GCS declines to less than 14 was about 3%. And in the slow arms, that frequency was about 4%. Not statistically significant, but of course, the point estimate pointing towards better status in the fast rehydrated children. With regard to the clinically apparent brain injury, so the big bad injury that requires hyperosmolar therapy with 3% normal saline or mannitol or intubation, for that outcome, four children in the fast arms develop those outcomes versus eight in the slow arms. Again, 
not achieving statistical significance, but the point estimate definitely leaning in the to favor fast rehydration. And then finally, with regard to the digit span outcome measure. So digit span is a test of short-term memory that we perform both during the hospitalization as well as at follow-up. And what we found is in the subgroups that were most sick, so these are children with the lowest PCO2s, and the lowest pH, there was actually statistically significant improvement in those short-term memory scores in children in the fast arms compared to those in the slow arms. I think what's interesting about the results is that although overall in the group there wasn't statistical significance pointing to any one arm as being better than another, no matter how we looked at the data, the point estimates always tended to favor the fast rehydration. And like Nate said, we did see some small but significantly better improvements in the short-term memory during kids that were rehydrated with faster rates of rehydration. So if anything, the data are kind of pointing to the, the possibility that faster may be slightly better. But overall, the conclusion is really that fluids don't seem to make a big contribution to neurological outcomes in decaying. I think what you're hinting at is you have to treat the patient. And though there are protocols, you have to treat the patient ultimately and not just strictly put your, your blinders on. I think that's why this paper is so important. Yeah, we would yeah. we would agree with that. That's a nice summary. Really, you know, it's uh, we shed a tear and have a smile when we think about 20 years of work, which basically comes down to the conclusion that take care of the patient as you see them in front of you and give them appropriate fluid based on their clinical and metabolic status. Just one final nuance question. There is some concern, certainly across the FOMED world right now, that perhaps normal saline may not be the best initial fluid resuscitation choice, that lactated ringers might be a better initial choice and avoid the risk of hyperchloremic acidosis during that initial phase of DKA treatment. Does this concern exist within pediatric DKA? And is lactated ringers ever appropriate in this population? So yeah, we do see a lot of hyperchloremic acidosis in children with DKA. And in fact, in our study, we saw quite a lot of it too. And it turns out that it was more common in the fluid arms that received a greater amount of sodium chloride. So it was more common in the fluid arms that used normal saline for all of the hydration. And it was more common also in the faster fluid arm. So in general, the amount of sodium chloride that you infuse, the greater that is, the greater the risk of hyperchloremic acidosis. There have only been very small trials in children looking at balanced solutions or balanced electrolyte solutions like lactated ringers. So there isn't really great data, but in theoretically at least, it does make some sense that cutting down the chloride load might decrease the frequency of hyperchloremic acidosis. That said, hyperchloremic acidosis for the most part is a pretty benign condition. And we did look actually in our data at the duration of hospitalization and time to resolution of ketoacidosis in the different patient arms and didn't see a difference there. So the main risk really that, that we know of with hyperchloremic acidosis is just that it might extend the hospitalization waiting for that to resolve. But in spite of the fact that we did see differences in the arms among frequency of hyperchloremic acidosis, we didn't see differences in the duration of hospitalization. So while it's certainly reasonable in, in some sense to think about using balanced electrolyte solutions instead of so much sodium chloride, it doesn't seem to have a substantive effect in the in terms of duration of hospitalization. And I'll add, Derek, that you know, as you know, there is a little bit of literature around balanced solutions versus saline type solutions in rehydration of adults with DKA 
there really is very limited or no uh, data in children, that would be a good future trial for somebody else besides Nicole and me to conduct. But, uh, but in terms, again, of the neurologic uh, outcomes, we didn't see any difference between half normal and normal saline and those with and without hyperchloremic acidosis. So again, echoing that we're not sure if it's more of a nuisance problem than a important problem. I like that summary. A nuisance problem may actually uh, use that on my next shift later this evening. I I like that a lot. (laughs) So give us a sneak preview. Where is your work and the work in general for pediatric DKA headed next? Again, I'm going to gear this towards junior investigators, particularly uh, out there listening, is this is one of the joys of doing research, is that for both Nicole and me, it started with a clinical observation, something that happened around us while caring for sick patients that led us to think, wow, why did this happen? This doesn't make sense to us. And that led us down this path. And the path has taken us to this large randomized trial, which concludes, you know, fluid really is not the headline item. It's not the big news story to cause cerebral injury or cerebral edema. So of course, the next step for investigators such as us is to say, well, then what is it? And Nicole in particular has been working with people in the lab and again, this juvenile uh, rat model of DKA. And we've actually submitted a grant to the NIH to look at other factors which might be at the root of DKA-related brain injury. And I'll turn it over to Nicole to give you a little bit of a snapshot about that. Yeah, so a, a lot of our data in the lab, and actually the clinical data as well, kind of point to importance of cerebral hypoperfusion and reperfusion as possibly causing brain injury during DKA, as well as the hyperinflammatory state, neuroinflammation. It's pretty well known that DKA triggers a hyperinflammatory state. And so that in combination with abnormalities in cerebral perfusion, as best we can tell at the present time with our data, seems to be the most likely trigger of brain injuries. And so we're really excited to investigate that a bit further in the lab and hopefully start to look at some inflammatory modulators as possible treatments or prevention for brain injuries in DKA at, at some point. So this this uh, grant we have, it's going to be reviewed by the NIH in the near future, investigates both uh, techniques to look at cerebral perfusion, as well as looking at uh, markers of inflammation. And in fact, we've published, it was an ancillary study to the current study that was published, the first author was Eris Gero, where we found elevations in markers of inflammation in children with DKA, as others have shown. And in the RAT model, there are some absolutely beautiful, if you can say that, images of the rat brain in the course of DKA and the intense inflammation that occurs looking at sections of the brain, both four, eight, 12 hours into DKA is quite striking. So this grant really is going to explore both perfusion as well as inflammation in the human and in the rat model as well. Nate, I will give you free artistic license to refer to rat brains as beautiful on this podcast. That was great. I certainly hope it's not one of the take home for our listeners, though, as we near the end. So to ensure this, what are the one, maybe two real take home points that you want them to take away from your paper, this podcast, um, and the associated blog post? Well, I think probably the, the major take home message is really the one that you brought up before, that fluids don't seem to be the main cause of brain injuries in children with DKA. 
And so what is really necessary for these children is to treat them as you would other dehydrated patients. Look at the patient's clinical status, hydrate them appropriately according to what they seem to need clinically without sort of blindly adhering to a protocol out of fear of triggering cerebral edema and cerebral injury. And I would add the corollary is we have been taught over the last 30 years to not give a fluid bolus unless absolutely necessary. And as you may know, hypotension in the setting of DKA is very uncommon, but dehydration and acidosis is very common. I would flip the paradigm and say that children with DKA usually do need a fluid bolus to establish rehydration, and you need a good reason not to give them a fluid bolus. But again, with the caveat that we're not giving license to give, you know, tremendous amounts of fluid, but you really should, we would argue that most children actually need a fluid bolus, and it's the uncommon child that doesn't. I like that a lot. I think it's a, a nice sort of summary, something that we can take home with us. And though we may not be uh, ready to flip the paradigm in our treatment tomorrow on our next shift, uh, the pendulum at least is starting to move the next direction. I think that's something that all of us in the emergency department should keep our eye out for. Nathan Cooperman, Nicole Glazer, thank you again so much for taking your time to explain your work with us. Uh, congratulations on this huge publication. I'm sure everyone from UC Davis is very proud. Congratulations to the PCARN uh, Research Network. This is Derek Monette signing off for Alien. Until next time.